Okay, you've, you've heard all, <clears throat> all these things about pack a sack already, but uh, it, it's just, I, 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 there's something else I learned that I think we need to try for next year, and that is, instead of you doing it with your own family, let's bust everybody up and do teams of people. Uh, yesterday we went with Matthew and Alicia Walton, and I think the world of the Waltons, and we had a great time, but I learned some stuff about them even as we were driving around delivering these things. There was one house we went to um, that looked like um, a, a junkyard with killer dogs in it, yeah, but the dogs were in the house, and so we knocked on the door. There was nobody there, thank goodness. Um, the dogs jumped on the door, were scratching the door. It was, we were within an inch of our lives. Uh, and it started barking, and then it breathed. And when it breathed, his breath came through the bottom of the door outside. And Matthew and I knew that our time was done. Uh, but we lived beyond that moment, and we went through a lot of things. But uh, you think of Alicia as this really sweet just lady that just was so kind and gentle. She was driving along, and she hit one of the bumps of Jonesboro. There's lots of bumps in Jonesboro, as you know. And it rearranged my kidney, my right and left kidney switched places. And I went, ugh, just like that. And I do that when Melissa's driving. She's usually the one driving. And she takes personal, assault, uh, personal offense whenever I make that noise, like I'm complaining about her driving. I'm really not. I would never do such a thing. Alicia said nothing. And, uh, and Melissa said uh, I just told Melissa, I said, look at that. Uh, she did it. I grunted. She said nothing. And she said, well, she's, she's not used to you. She doesn't know why you did that. And I said, I did that because my kidneys rearranged themselves on that bump. But Alicia was just so nice and kind. She just said, oh, sorry. And as we were leaving this place, she sped up and hit that bump extra hard. <laughs> and I said, but she said, they needed to be put back right. Uh, and Matthew said, see, there's the wit I put up with all the time. See, that's stuff you don't see all the time. You need to discover this in the joy of fellowship. And, and then just ask, just ask Annette Wilson. She walks in a house to do a kind deed, and a fly trap attacks her hair. She leaves her DNA in one of the houses where we were. Stuff like that happens, and it's wonderful, and it becomes part of this, this wonderful glue. I'm telling you, these things, these stories, and these events... Uh, this is what makes you never want to leave the church as you grow up because you have that stuff that is so powerful. And I appreciate that Valley View extends the opportunity to everybody. And if you didn't and you had other reasons, totally understand. But if you did, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get those stories that you get to, to smile about every once in a while. And, and we'll be talking about that as we go along uh, today. So if you will, uh, there's really no text to turn to, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 88. That's the only place where we're going to look at, and you can already be there. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? 
see about it yourself, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. And so Judas became the sixth or seventh person in the Bible to intentionally take his own life. And he probably became the most famous suicide in the history of the world. That's all that I'm going to use of this text this morning because I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit out of context, and I want to talk about this growing problem in our country, suicide, the taking of your own life. It's the 10th leading cause of death in our country, claiming 47,000 lives every year. That's just the ones reported, and there are others that people don't even know about. Recent federal numbers indicate that the nation's suicide rates are the highest since right after World War II in every state across every age group and ethnicity. In 2018, 10 million people considered, Americans considered taking their own lives. And yet we gotta zoom a little closer. It's a little bit big, so let's zoom a little closer. In Arkansas, every 17 hours, someone decides to end their life. For those 10 to 34 years old, it's the second leading cause of death. And KIT reported the other night, Arkansas is ninth in our country in a suicide rate. But even then, even then it's just a little far away. It's a bunch of dry statistics that mean little to us. But if we took a poll, and we're not, but if we took a poll and I had a raise of hands, how many of you have had a loved one or a close friend or even just a friend that you've known to take their own life and it impacted you some way? How many would it be? I have to think there would be 40, 50% of you raise your hands. Going through my life, I can look back on a few of these at Fried Hardeman whenever I was there and had a favorite professor. His name was Dr. Dal Flatt. He had four brothers that preached. and He grew up in the church, and he was a strong person, and he ignited the fire of faith or at least propelled it in a lot of people who came to Fried Hardeman to learn to preach. He taught the hardest class that was there, and it was everybody called it misery, and he became a dear friend as I aced that class, and I loved him very much, but I knew, and he shared with us, he struggled with depression, and that inspired a lot of people, because when you have a Bible professor who knows the faith and yet struggles with this, he becomes, he becomes a friend to a lot of people. But there were days you could tell he didn't want to be there, and he didn't like life, and yet he put one foot in front of the other. But after I left Freed a few years later, there was a day he couldn't take it anymore. He struggled with depression and anxiety, and he was on medications. He couldn't take it anymore, and he took his own life, and it threw everybody into this existential crisis about what Christians and godly people who struggle with this and what ends up happening to them. I had help with this from Devin Swindle, who just a few weeks ago got back from a funeral one of the students who comes to our Caruso camp. This Caruso camp happens every year, and I go to it, and I love this, and all these high school students who, who either want to go into preaching or just want to learn how to preach to be able to be of use to the local church, they get together and they learn these skills, and one particular student who'd been there every year I had, and maybe one more, was named Cameron Maynard. He was from Texarkana. A really talented kid who could just bring to life, and he just brought his, his own life was like this, this thing that he shared with people, very vulnerable, but he was a small kid, he was bullied a lot, and he was really struggling in school, and his parents and he were having some kind of conflict, and he decided, I'm going to go in the bathroom, and he went in the bathroom, and he took his own life, and it devastated everybody who's associated with that camp. How can that happen to someone so determined to be faithful? 
Some of you may remember last year, Valentine's Day, Paul makes sure that we have this great experience for you couples, brings in, he brings in this comedian slash magician and he dazzles us all. We just laugh from one moment to the next and he just seems so full of life and he's a preacher, he's a youth minister actually and he's just one of these guys that just makes you laugh and brings joy out of life and you just like being around him, he's fun. We liked him so much, we're going to bring him back for the college students. So he has a magic show for our college students back there in the fellowship room. But he preached that morning and he preached that afternoon and he could handle the text well. Talking about flip the script. About giving God the bad stuff and let him turn it good. And then he decides he can't practice what he preaches. He has trouble one day with, I don't know, he'd moved to another church and there was some kind of conflict that developed and that by the next, by, by this Thursday morning I'm thinking of, he had bought a, a gun the day before and he goes to the church building that morning and he ends his life right there in the church parking lot. What in the world? This tragedy is so complex because for the people who survive you, they're not just dealing with your absence now, they're dealing with the bewilderment and the trauma of a violent death and you want to be mad at the murderer, but the murderer is the one who took his own life. And then you've got to wonder, you knew, you knew very well. I mean, why did they not talk to somebody? Why did the people, and their lives are loaded with people who love them, why didn't they venture out just with one of them? Just with one of them, share it with them. But they didn't and it makes you feel like, what, why, why didn't you trust me and love me enough to share with that? Share that with me, why? And so you have this blob of emotion called anger, frustration, sorrow, hurt, and grief all combined, and it's traumatic. It's terrible. And those who survive it, that's exactly what they're left to grieve with, and it takes a long time to work through that. What in the world? Some will say the church shouldn't address this, right? Turn, turn yourself, mostly because we don't know what to say. But you see, the church has a corner on the market when we talk about the sanctity of life. The value of life? We need to say something about this. There's all sorts of reasons why people do this. Most, many, many times they, they've been helped along. They kind of have an accomplice called drugs and alcohol. They help them to bust up their thinking and they're not thinking straight. And so some of that kind of enters the picture. Most often, nearly always, it's depression and anxiety. And in particular, those between 10 and 34 are facing, this is the most anxious generation to ever grace the planet. And so you build up their depression, their anxiety, and they don't know what to do about it. And in an impulsive moment, when they think that there's no other solution, they just take their life. And sometimes, listen, sometimes it has nothing to do with circumstances. There's a chemical imbalance in you. It's every bit the same kind of a physical thing as a broken arm is. And you come, and I'm not going to say to somebody with a broken arm and a broken leg, well, just come to church Sunday night, you'll feel better. We need to find them some help, find them the real things that will address this real issue. Listen, I'm not angry, and your kids are going to look at you and say the preacher's angry again. I'm not angry, but I just, I grapple with this, with people. And the emotions are raw when you do. There are people who think you shouldn't talk about it because uh, talking about it glamorizes it. And it is a weird thing. You watch 13 Reasons Why on Netflix, 
and then the suicide rate spikes like people think it's a cool, courageous thing. That is the dumbest thing in the world. At the same time, to go silent about it because we're afraid somebody might get the idea from our conversation can't be what rules the day. There's a crisis that people face. Something will happen in the moment that knocks them off balance. It's going to happen to you. We're going to talk about this in a minute. You're going to be knocked off balance, and in that moment, in that very impulsive moment, you make, a ra- you make an irrational decision to take a life, and it's irreversible. You can't go back on it, and you can't come to your senses, and you can't change your mind. It is absolutely an uncome-back-frommable thing. Some people running from guilt, they've done something legitimately bad. Listen, I'm telling you, I would say to Judas, Judas, what you've done is terrible. They're embarrassed by an action they've done. They can't face the people they love the most because of what they've done. Think it's a wonderful life. Some are bullied. It happens a lot with smaller kids or kids that, that aren't treated right by people at school and they just can't face another day. And maybe they have gone for help and no one seems to help them and they think this is the only solution there is. Well, I, there's some kids who came up to me this morning just now and said, listen, I, I, I just talked to my friends who were at early service and you scared them. I don't mean to scare you. But there are people who need to talk about this, and the church needs to be a place where they can. Some people want to evade this physical pain that's coming upon them. Think of people who've got a life sentence. They know they're not going to live beyond this diagnosis. I don't want to face the pain, and so I, I, a physician-assisted suicide, or even their own. There are others who are simply so lonely they could die, and it's literally true, and they're emotionally upset, and in the spirit of the moment, and while they're knocked out of balance for that few moments of their life where they cannot seem to get their bearings, they make a decision, a permanent, irreversible solution to a temporary problem. And you get to a point where uh, the thought of being dead is more pleasant to you than the thought of being alive, and so you take your own life. I can, I, can, I can relate somewhat to some of this feeling. I've never thought about taking my life, but I, I'll, I'll share this with you, that, that, that when I, uh, and I don't mean to say this to where nobody pokes fun at it anymore. It's fine to t- poke fun at it, but you know how it took me forever to make a decision to come to Valley View. You may recall that. I, people say that to me all the time. I have a file about that, and it says the terrible decision. The terrible decision decision and I outlined in that thing how I made that decision and how it hurts so badly and the first six months here was terrible no offense to you all okay you guys are great sweet people but when you were leaving something you knew and your identity was rooted to and you uproot all that and come to something new you feel lost and you feel like you don't belong and you're trying to get your position It's a lonely place to be, and there are some moments where not living is a more peaceful thing than dealing with your feelings and thoughts about this. You will get there in your life, and if you haven't yet, you will. You'll lose a mate that you've had for life that you've anchored yourself to for all your life, and you're like, where do I find my meaning and significance? It's going to happen to you, and I want you to know it's not bad. It's okay to not be okay, and you don't have to take your life for it. It's okay to be in misery sometimes, but I'll tell you what to do with it here in just a minute. I'm just saying to you, you don't have to take your life as one solution to that. It's not a solution. There's no reason to. 
But I know what that feeling feels like, and it's very intense, and you feel like it's just never going to be any different than this. So I've come up with this idea, so a couple of sources. One is I want to, to find out what are they doing now, right now, to treat suicide the most. When people come in, and this is a tendency that they're thinking about, what do doctors do the most? And a couple of things are this. We never just, they, they kind of bring them into a hospital, and they do some things with them, and they send them home, but they never send them home without them knowing. We're going to have people at your house on occasion. We're going to send you notes. We're going to call. We're gonna, the problem is they would say, go home, and then they'd say, if you need us, come back. Well, they're not going to come back. But if you go to them and they know somebody's coming to check on them, it makes things better and the success rate went up. So they're deciding we need to follow up with these people. Makes total sense. Second one is come up with a plan. We want to help you go through your mind and come up with a plan of what you will say to yourself when those thoughts come up. That's the treatment. The second thing I went to, I invited Brian Starin to my house this week. That's going to sound really weird. But I had a real knockdown, drag out argument with him all week long. He's the magician that was here. And argued why he shouldn't have done it. I think the problem is this that we aren't equipping our young people to handle when life becomes a crisis. And we need to tell them life is going to become a crisis, isn't it? A crisis will come up, and you need to know. And I want to tell you something. The church is often criticized because we have such a firm hold on doctrine. And doctrine seems like some kind of cold, distant thing. Like it's just intellect. It's a, it's a, 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 a test you've got to pass and answer the right questions to get into heaven. But can I tell you something? The God who gave us doctrine didn't just give us doctrine for the head. He gave us doctrine for the heart. He wanted this to make a difference. He wants the truth to sink in. And he wants it to sink in so that we, we, we think of all the implications of believing this if I believe this fully and I put it in my life it will help me to battle the lies that come upon me and lies will batter you to death and when you get in these moments of crisis the lies come from every direction and you have such a tendency to believe them and you've got to have this truth rooted deep in you to come up and call those lies lies and hold to the truth Jesus said the truth will set you free and that's what we got to believe we're not teaching this realistically enough for some people truth number one life is a sacred gift from God don't just use this as a proper Republican to fight the abortion issue. You can do that, it's legit. But that's not the only thing. Don't just use this truth uh, to, to, to prove that murder is wrong. It's true, but that's not all it is. Yourself, your body, your person is a gift from God and God loves that person. He loves it and desires more than anything else to live in fellowship with every single person he created. And he gives it, here's the beautiful thing, accompanying the body and accompanying yourself is this promise, this policy that says, I will go with you everywhere you go. You're never outside the presence of the living God who's accompanying you everywhere you go. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that's true? You see, we're told pray without ceasing. That's not to go around bowing your head and saying amen. It's to say that no matter where you are and what you're doing, God is right there with you, able to carry on conversation with you in your thoughts, in your brain, or in your car out loud. God is with you, and he wants fellowship. He wants you to know he loves you and is crazy about you. I just don't think our people believe this is real. You're never alone, ever. You're never without his assistance. He delights in you because he created you and he's planning this eternal union with you and he wants you to be there. And until you, until you die, and by the way, he gives you life and he decides when it leaves and only he is to know that. And the fact that sometimes we don't feel his presence is not to question the doctrine. It's to test us and say, do you really believe this or not? Because it's true. This doctrine is absolutely always true. Always. And so when the lie comes up in your head, when the lie comes up in your head that says, I'm alone, it is a lie. It's a lie, and you remind yourself of that. Your doctrine is to provide you the evidence to rise up and call that a lie. You're never alone. If it ever comes up in your voice, and your voice in your head goes around like a, like a weird kind of record playing over and over, I'm alone, it's a lie. I don't matter, it's a lie. I have no value or purpose, it is a bald-faced lie. It's a lie. And our doctrine is meant to give you the strength to rise up and argue that. Second, train yourself to be grateful in all things. I didn't say for all things. I said be grateful for all things. God is training us. When you are a spirit-filled person in particular, as Ephesians 5 says, you're always looking around saying, what can I thank God for? This is not some kind of pep rally, a way of looking at things. This is not just some tactic to be positive even while the world's falling apart. It doesn't deny that sometimes there's crisis and the world is falling apart. What it says is even while it is, there are things to be thankful for. And God is placing little gifts all around you. All the time. This woman wrote this book called A Thousand Gifts. Maybe I'll read for next year. Where she decides she was being trained. She says, I've got to look for. The doctor told her this. You need to start looking for things to be grateful for. And she says, I believe God's with me all the time. I want you to enumerate three a day. I don't want it to be food, clothes, all that stuff we say all the time, the cheesy stuff. I'm, it's all important. That's all true. But I want you to think. I want you to look more carefully. And I want you to find the things that you have to be thankful for because so many people are going around saying, everything's bad. Everything. No, it's not. God's given you gifts. You're not seeing them. So she began to do this, and bad things happened on certain days, and she talked about them, these tragic things and these deep emotional things that were happening. But she said in the midst of them came this light that was always shining because she was always seeing. I'm just going to take you through this. I want to train you how to do this and be a person like that. I walk in the worship service this morning. There's people I haven't seen in a while, right? Not, not that you haven't, but, but mostly visiting people that just come every once in a while. I saw them, and it was good. I walked past Myatt, and here's what Myatt did. He turned, his mom was holding him, and he turned his head upside down. So he was looking at me upside down, right? And I just kind of did this, and he let out this huge bundle of just cool laughter. You ever heard kids laugh? These little kids just laugh up a storm. That was a gift from God. Did you see? You didn't see. I saw it. I made coming here today. 
an amazing thing. But you know what? A lot of you can see that you just miss it. You got to train yourself. I believe God says it this way. When he says, I want you to give thanks in all things, I think what he's saying is, I want you to keep looking because you're not looking hard enough. You're focusing on this and on that, and I want you to understand that there's blessings here. This, every morning this past week, Melissa leaves, Abby leaves for school. I'm at home by myself, and I've got a stack of books. This is every preacher's dream, a stack of books here, hot coffee on a, on a table here, and we have a cat now, some of you says, already, there's, that's not a blessing. I know what you're saying. He jumps up in my lap. She does. And she kind of stretches out, and she purrs and sleeps for about 10 minutes. That's all. And then she gets up and leaves. 10 minutes. So I'm sitting here reading a book, drinking coffee, and there's this warm, purring cat in my lap. And about Tuesday, I just looked up and said, that's a really good one, God. That's good. Then I went visiting the other day, and the first person wasn't home. The second person was Gene Young. Is Gene here? Gene's not here at the moment. So I walk in her house, and she's, she's about to go to therapy for her knee. She had knee replacement. She had a beautiful Christmas tree there, all these gaps. I said, this is so cute. She says, oh, there's something for you here. Let me show you. That. Oh, it's upside down, sorry. Snowman. Hand-stitched. Took her two weeks. For two weeks, she thought of the preacher and made a quilt. Listen, there might be some stuff, stuff in life, and there were some things that went wrong this week, but nothing went so wrong that this didn't make it right somehow. It's just some, that stuff was there, and it was there all week long. I got this text the other day from the Salos. This is gonna, this is gonna be cool. We're, we've got a car. You gave him a car, right? So it's not, I didn't blow it just now. Okay, I got a car. And, and it's his 16th birthday. Cameron's a good kid. Everybody knows he's a good kid. Man, his parents decide we're going to get him a car. But we don't want to give it to him yet, but we've got it. Can we park it in your driveway? Now, I don't know what kind of guy thinks this way. Here's my carport. i got a carport to put my truck in. He parks right in front of it. He doesn't pull up in it. He parks in front of it because he doesn't want to take my spot. But I can't get in the spot with a car there. I'm thinking, so nobody's going to use a carport for three days. That's an ASU professor who just doesn't, you know. It sits there, so I park next to it, and we get around. And, but we're sitting there going, you know what? Friday's going to come. Friday's going to come, and they're going to take this there, and it's going to thrill Cameron to death, and we get to, we get to be a part of this. We, get, we just get to let it park there. And I hot-wired and drove it for a while, and, and it goes zero to 60 in about 15 minutes. I mean, it's, it's amazing because they've governored it. No, no, no. I, it parked there. It was wonderful. And I, I got to be a part of that. And they, then I get to see the pictures on Friday. They text it to us. We got to be a part of that. That is such, listen, there's these gifts everywhere. Uh, there's stuff like that that God sends us that just drops in. Our, and we're just not seeing it sometimes. And I think we need to train ourselves. It's not a season of the year, church. It's, it's a way of life. It's, it's how we do it. It's how we live. And these examples are simply everywhere. And here's what I know. That's a doctrine that's practical. If you ever think that everything is so bad and there's some, something so bad that there's no good in my life at all, it is a lie. It's a lie. Don't in a lie do something you'll always regret when the truth is telling you and yelling at you not to believe it the whole time. Third, 
be very accurate or biblical in your view of suffering. I want you just to see these verses. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. What I want to know is, why didn't God just prevent them from being brokenhearted and crushed in spirit? If God can do such great deliverance after, why doesn't he intervene so that it never comes in the first place? God never said he would. He says you're going to be crushed in spirit sometimes. You are going to be brokenhearted. The righteous person may have many troubles. Yes, you will. God never said you won't. And anybody who goes around going, they shouldn't have these troubles and struggles in your life. Why shouldn't you? The Lord delivers you from them all. He sends, a lot of times he allows these things because he wants to know, what are you going to, are you going to turn to me for help? Are you going to try something else and use your own hand to solve this? Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he'll sustain you. He'll never let the righteous be shaken. Paul, Peter quotes this, 1 Peter chapter 5. He doesn't say you won't have cares. And he won't even say they won't be almost unbearable. What he does say is, I wish what you'll do when you have them is cast them on me. He's very honest. First Peter chapter 2. It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. Are you going to ever feel pain for suffering that's not fair to you? Look at that passage. Are you ever going to have pain, legitimate pain, from something that happens to you that's not even your fault? He says, yes, you will. And for those of you going through anxiety or depression, you think, I shouldn't have to go through this. Really, why not? Our faith has this huge section of it that says this is very real. And what you do with it is when your faith really enters the picture. It's not that some will have troubles and some won't. It's everybody's going to have troubles, but you have to choose how you're going to handle those troubles. And he goes on to say, you know, if you take a beating for doing something you really did do wrong, well, that's not something. But if you take a beating... You suffer for doing good. I want you to endure, and that's good before me. Next screen. To this you were called that you, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. The very centerpiece of our faith is a Savior who unjustly suffered and by doing so provided you the greatest thing in the world. The cross is both the ugliest thing in the world and the most beautiful thing in the world. It's terrible it had to happen, but thank God it did. Because by doing so, that's how he redeemed the world. And he's wanting to say to us, I want you to know that I have a purpose for the suffering I allow in this world. You will face afflictions. You will face unfair treatment. You're called to it. And God gives us certain things. Listen to this one, Galatians chapter 6. Carry each other's burdens, talking to the church now, and you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, just look at the verse. Will we have burdens? Okay, no lie, we're going to have them. Who should we turn to when we have them? You know, Hebrews chapter 10, when it talks about don't forsake the assembly, that's not for elders to look out and say, who missed last Sunday, let's beat them up. You know what that is? Guys, Hebrew preacher says, the Hebrews preacher says, you will lose your faith if you don't make it communal. You will lose your faith if you don't make it communal. 
We have burdens you cannot bear. God, I think, designed it in our lives to sometimes have burdens you cannot bear alone. And he gave you the church to be the way it gets born, right? To way it gets, why don't we do this? And this is the strongest argument I had with Brian staring all week. Here he stands before us and tells us about flipping the script, about using this tragedy of your life and blessing others through it. You're going to tell me that and you're going to give me the hope and the joy, the empower. It was a great sermon. And I heard a lot of people talking about it and you're going to turn around and not rely on the church that you say I should be able to rely on you hypocrite that's what I said and it's true I want to know from him of all the people he had on his phone and all the people who loved him and worked with him all those years in ministry why could you not call one of us just one I'm going to take something out of context, and the fact that I'm telling you I am means it's okay. Joel, right? Remember Acts chapter 16 when Paul's in prison with Silas, and they're singing to midnight, and the earthquake comes. You remember what the jailer was about to do? He's about to thrust himself through, kill himself, because a Roman knew this. If I lose my charges, the people I'm responsible for, they're just going to kill me anyway. So they're all gone. He's about to kill himself when Paul yells out, and I want you to remember this verse. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. What I want you to say to yourself when times seem to knock you off balance and you think I'm going to call, I'm going to check out of here and I'm going to call it quits and I'm going to get out of here. Don't harm yourself. We are all here for you. Even if you don't know us well, we're brothers and sisters and it doesn't matter whether I know you well or not, I feel an obligation to you and I want you to know, call me. That's how God says we're going to have burdens and we're going to have problems and trials and we're going to be crushed in spirit. When that happens, call a brother or a sister. Do we have a fellowship where we're just playing church here on Sunday morning and looking like a good church and talking about patting ourselves on the back about Pakistan? Are we really a church to where if you had the trouble, you would let us be church? One of the things God says is you're going to have trouble, but I'm putting the church in your life to help you and I'm also going to stay in your life. I want you to look at Psalm 88 where you are hopefully turned to. It's the most depressing chapter of the entire Bible. It's one of the Psalms that you know Psalms are laments and it talks about all the trouble I'm facing and then I turn to God and he comes through for me but in Psalm 88 he's turning to God and he's crying to God and God doesn't answer a thing. Look at the last verse. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become my darkness. There's a great book about, from a Christian about depression called Darkness is My Only Companion. That's the last line of Psalm 88. The last word in Hebrew is darkness. There's no answer. There's no good end. No one wants to preach Psalm 88 because there ain't no pretty end at it. 
How do you explain it? And the only thing I know to explain is this. He's doing the one thing. It's the form of the text, not just the words. He's doing the only thing he knows to do, and he's talking to God and praying, and it's an ugly, gut-wrenching prayer. And I want you to know your prayers should not be one of the five acts of worship. Your prayers, when you're in this situation, should be a gut-wrenching wrestling with God and laying it all at his feet. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes the only help that will bless you through it is help you get from prayer and if you don't pray you don't get the help our doctrine about suffering is realistic and it's empowering I'm not lying to anybody I'm not going to tell you things are going to be roses all the time but I'm going to tell you, if you start to feel that your struggle is a sign that you're somehow off or, or you're somehow all wrong and that you're a failure, the doctrine of suffering says that's a lie. That's a lie. Scripture says this. And when you think that this, this whole pain and this whole struggle of your life is completely useless, has no value to you, and that you might as well end it all, it is a lie. That's what we just told you. Ramp up on this doctrine. Two more, I promise we'll go fast. Fourth. Remind yourself that God has the ability to redeem. The word redeem means to compensate for the faults or bad parts of something. If I were to talk to Brian Stern, I would say to him, I don't know what it is that makes you so upset or what makes you so embarrassed or shamed that you think you've got to take your life out, but there is nothing, nothing, nothing that you have done that God can't redeem. Is that true? There's nothing you've done God can't redeem. You know what I'd say to Judas? I would say, Judas, what you did was awful. But I want to tell you something. Our God is bigger than your, your action. And I want you to know that even right now, after betraying the Son of God, you can be forgiven by the very sacrifice you led to. You can be redeemed. I'd say that to Judas. I'd say to Ahithophel in the Old Testament, when he was this, he prided himself on his great wisdom, and all these kings listened to his counsel. And one time the king decided he wasn't going to listen to him anymore, and Ahithophel was devastated. He lost his job, basically. His purpose, his function in life, what he prided himself on. He went home, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. And I want to tell you, if you've lost your job, God can redeem it. If you've lost your marriage, I think it's awful and sad. And I think there is sin often involved in divorce and remarriage. But I want to tell you something. If you've lost your marriage, God can even redeem that. When something tells you that you've sinned so bad you can't fix it or you've made so many mistakes you can't face it, it is a lie. Final truth. We are made for heaven. We'll never be home until we're there. God made us for fellowship with him in this life to prepare us for really close union and fellowship in the next. And you will come along and there's a lot of older people that will commit suicide because all the best stuff is behind. Nothing will ever get better. The best is all in in, in the past and there's nothing to look forward to and we know that is a lie. We just think too earthly and not enough divine and biblically. The best is always just ahead. Here's what Paul said. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that we'll have there. It's just not even worth comparing Whatever it takes, whatever you have to endure to enter heaven will be utterly worth it. And you'll never even bring up the question of, God, why did you allow this? Or what? It will just dissolve in the glory of that place. And here's where I have to face the inevitable question. But won't suicide cost you heaven? 
<laughs> and we're afraid of this because if I say, you know what, suicide won't necessarily lead you to heaven, people will be encouraged to kill themselves. That's what I've been told. And if you say no, well, then it won't, then you're saying that our doctrine is not as high as you thought it was. Here is the truth. If a person committing suicide ends up in hell, it will not be because of the suicide. It will be because their lives were lived in opposition, the wrong direction, as we talked about last Sunday. If a person walking in the direction of pleasing God for some reason gets off kilter, they're knocked off their haunches, right? They're just knocked down and they're thinking unclearly and because they're not in their right mind, they take their life. They will not be judged for their worst moment, even if it was the last moment. The trajectory of your life is the evidence presented. <coughs> the place in the United States that's seen more suicides than anywhere else is the Golden Gate Bridge. Over 1,600 people go to that bridge to jump. In 2021, they're building this multi-million dollar suicide barrier to prevent that. When you get home sometime, look up Ken Baldwin and the Golden Gate Bridge. There's a great interview with two people who survived the jump. And here's what Ken Baldwin said. As soon as my hands left the bridge, I realized I made the biggest mistake of my life because I realized everything in my life that I thought was unfixable was totally fixable except for having just jumped. God spared him and he has a message for anybody considering it and it would be well worth your look. These five truths are what I would put in your head and I would let them sink down into your heart. I would memorize them and I would meditate on them. I'd think, what are the implications of these and let them sink in real hard. And then when the lies of life that seem to rise up and knock you off your feet and make you unbalanced and make you question everything you've ever done, they will not have the power to knock you off your feet because the truth is going to be there like a wall to defend the truth. And it will be there to set you aright. You can build your life on truth. You cannot. Your life will collapse on lies. God seemed to know what kind of lives would afflict us, and he seemed to know the power of these lies to affect our lives, and so he built into the truth these doctrines that aren't cold and distant. They're strong. They're vibrant. They're realistic. They're relevant. They matter and they work for you. They are your defense. And they rise up and they tell you the truth when you're so, so prone to believing a lie. Brian Starin, I'm, I hope I get a conversation with him one day. I believe he'll be in heaven, but that's just my belief. I can't say anything. I believe he will because of the trajectory of his life. I think something knocked him off kilter so much and he just didn't think there was another way and in a moment. If he'd, had, if he'd have had 25 more minutes with somebody who loves him and knows these truths, he would have never done it. And I would have told him these five things. And I'm telling you those five things because I want not one soul in here ever to start questioning your value or the significance of your life. 
And if there's anyone in here who's contemplating that, I'm not telling you to come forward because you're not gonna and I know it, but I want you to find somebody. And I want you to remember Acts 16. Don't harm yourself. We're all here for you. But there might be others who, seeing the value of the Christian faith, want to embrace it, want to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. And this morning it's available to you. You confess the name of Jesus and be immersed. And he becomes your Lord you follow until you see him face to face. Anything we can do for you, please make it known and do something about what you know is true, even this morning as we stand and as we sing. Day.